Welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. In recent decades, behavioral economics has emerged as a significant field in its own right. With the history going back almost a century and incorporating insights from Nobel Prize winners such as Herbert Simon, Daniel Kahneman, and Richard Thaler, behavioral economics seems to promise a meaningful alternative to the assumptions of rational human behavior which underpin classical economics. Yet, what really is behavioral economics? And more importantly, what are the challenges which now appear likely to perhaps undermine behavioral economics seemingly inexorable progress and rise to the top of the academic standings. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jason Collins of the University of Technology, Sydney. Dr. Jason Collins is a senior lecturer in the economics discipline group at UTS and program director for the graduate certificate and master of behavioral economics. Jason joined UTS in January, 2022, following a career in industry and government. Jason co-founded and led PwC Australia's behavioral economics practice and built and led data science and consumer insights teams at the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. He's also worked as a lawyer, environmental campaigner, and an economic policy advisor with the Australian Treasury. Jason holds a PhD from the University of Western Australia in which his research focused on the intersection of economics and evolutionary biology. Jason, it is great to speak to you. Yeah, thanks very much for the invite, Lawrence. Let's start perhaps with the, the essential question. What is behavioral economics? Well, let me give you an, a formal and an informal definition. So, so formally, um, economics is built on a, a bu bunch of assumptions, like really to build the sort of models that economists use, we have to assume things. And, and economics, you know, the, the assumptions that, that are drawn initially were fairly, I suppose you'd say, um, you know, bland, bunch of, bunch of assumptions that happened to make, that, that, you know, often just made the math work. They, they, they were sensible. Some of them were very sensible assumptions around, you know, things such as and what's called transitivity. So if you prefer A to B and B to C, you should prefer A to C, that kind of thing. Quite, quite logical assumptions, sure. but they're also assumptions that quite often you, know, you could find problems with. And, and because as it turns out, humans don't conform to a lot of those, those assumptions. <laughs> and so behavioral economics is really about uh, loosening those assumptions, allowing them to be, those assumptions to be a bit closer to how humans uh, actually behave. So that's the, the formal definition. It's just really around loosening those assumptions, bringing in a slightly richer, um, I guess, description or, or, or um, model of human behaviour. But there's probably a, you know, that's, that's, that's how an academic economist like myself might define it. <laughs> then you think, you know, think about how it's used popularly. And, 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 and there it seems to be, it's a bit broader. Um, I'd call the broader definition what matches what's called behavioural science. But it's really around this whole idea of, you know, what, how can we um, change and understand human behaviour? So when you read a book that says, you know, this is the latest in behavioural economics, more, quite often it's probably that broader behavioural science definition and that stricter sort of narrow um, idea that an academic economist like myself might hold. Okay. And so if people were to pick up, say, one of those books you mentioned there, or maybe they read something in a, in a, in a journal or a popular magazine, 
what perhaps are some of the key ideas and, and concepts that um, they, they may have come across or they would perhaps be familiar with from the field of behavioral economics? Well, the funny thing is, a lot of things you'd be familiar with, you'd be familiar with them because your grandmother could probably tell them to you. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the sort of ideas that you, know, you hear them and you go, hang on, that's actually quite logical. So one of the classics that people understand is loss aversion, the idea that losses hurt more than, than gains. And as a result, if we're shown you know, a fair bet where, say, you know, flip a coin, win $10, lose $10, people you know, they'll, 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 they'll um, reject that. Not only that, I might even show them a strongly, uh, you know, I guess positive value bet. I might say flip a coin, win $20, lose $10, and people will still turn it down. And what's called risk aversion isn't really sufficient to, to explain that. So we have this concept of loss aversion, but that matches your instinct. You, you, you get a loss and you feel the pain and it doesn't quite seem to be the same uh, joy that you get when you get a gain. So, so that's one sort of concept, but I think the other thing with behavioral economics that people might be familiar with is that they just see it every day in the way that businesses deal with them or the choices that they're offered. So think about the last time you went to the shops and how everything was priced at $5.99, $6.99. There's a 99 at the end or a 90, 95, 90, whatever it might be. And that's because there, there's this idea called anchoring, where quite often we get hold of the first bit of information we see and we anchor to that quite closely. So we anchor quite close, anchor to the dollar number at the beginning, ignoring the fact that that 99 cents or you know, buying a car, $19,990, that $990 takes only $10 short of $20,000. So, so there, so, so there, businesses understand that because we anchor, they, you know, through trial and error, probably rather than any true deep understanding of human psychology, they've come to that point where they've designed, used a behavioral concept to actually design how they how they deal with you. As as you said, a lot of what you described there is the kind of thing that your grandmother would probably think is just just common sense. It it, it yes. seems like it it makes a lot of sense, and we can kind of mm. relate to it based on the examples you gave. So what then is essentially wrong with behavioral economics? Okay, so, so I think there's a pretty, a pretty long list of, of, of um, I guess, re, re, things which you might say that, that where, where behavioral economics um, might be running in, into trouble. And, and I should say, like, you know, there's, there's been a, you know, for, for, a, for a number of years now, probably in fact, coming up for a decade now, there's been one really big signal that there's a problem. This is what's you know, become known as the replication crisis. And I should say behavioral economics isn't the only um, science where this has occurred. But what they found is that many uh, of the concepts in behavioral economics, once you, that, you know, they've emerged in experimental settings. Um, people have, have you know, found a result in the lab, generally in the lab, using psychology students, <laughs> um, and, and said, hey, look, I found, I found a new effect, and that has become part of the behavioral economics, or again, you know, I'm using that definition broadly there, you know, it could sure. be you know, being from psychology or somewhere else, but become part of the, the canon of knowledge. And, and the replication crisis showed that when other people ran those same experiments with slightly larger subject pools generally to get a bit more experimental power, those um, effects disappeared. And then so, so when you ask that question, like, you know, if the things that your grandmother said, would say is common sense, why is it falling down? And it's because behavioral economics in some ways grew to be a list of biases and effects far larger than that, you know, those core concepts like loss aversion. Like loss aversion sort of is probably one of those concepts, even, even it's debated, but you say that, you know, there's a fairly robust phenomena that's there that needs to be explained. But the list became much um, longer and, and, and richer. 
And, and unfortunately, that longer ritualist sort of maybe it's due to academics desperately trying to find something new and novel um, really was full of a lot of effects that weren't really weren't really there. You know, one, one of the big areas that really suffered was an area called um, priming, where basically people are given you know, small stimuli, they're told to say read a story or something like that, and then asked a set of questions. And the idea being that story would prime something, might prime uh greed it might prime something else and and and, as, and then when they go you know then they then they answer questions and they answer them differently and they go look because they're acting greedily they did they did x and and those sort of experiments especially those using priming have really fallen apart so yeah so so in some ways we're ending back a bit with that list of you know the common sense biases that our that perhaps our grandmother might know but but again a bit richer than that it is like although i've sort of characterized it as you know something your, your grandmother knows one you know, really valuable thing that behavioral economics does do is quite often, you know, tries to formalize and provide models of how that works. And that allows you then to, of course, test it and see what, what are the um, you know, boundaries of, of this phenomena. Now, that's the canary. But of course, I think there's a, a bigger, there's a bigger piece here. And maybe, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll give you give a bit of the list and then we can maybe pick some pieces of them. But Apart from that lack of foundation, then what's happened is people have then taken this and just run off and started applying it all over the shop. And we've seen you know, a lot of behavioral science teams emerge and, I, and, and some of them doing really good work. But ultimately, when you're out there running around with a, a long, really long list of biases, many of them um, flawed and, 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 and trying to use them to adjust people's behavior, things are going to start to go wrong. So does that then suggest that so on, on the one hand, that the experimental method doesn't necessarily match the real world reality, but then also that that long list of biases that you, you mentioned, that actually all we're doing is building up a really long list of exceptions to the rule, which really should be mm -hmm. saying and demonstrating that the rule is slightly wrong in the first place. Yeah. So, 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 so on, your, on your first point there, like in some ways that wasn't the case. Well, what, what you described there is what you might call lack of generalization. So experiments in the lab don't work in the real world, but the replication crisis showed many of the experiments didn't even work in the lab. So there, <laughs> there was just nothing, nothing there was, was that weak. But there is also, there is also that question when something's in the lab, you know, in a very artificial environment, does that really, is that really relevant to um, humans making decisions in much richer environments with much more context and you know social uh, uh, context, that kind kind of thing. So, so yeah, there, there's, but it was probably the problem's probably more towards that form around this just you know poor poor experimental practice that that uncovering things that don't really exist. But on that long list of you know really long list of biases, yeah, when you end up with a really long list of biases, you you have a toolkit that isn't you know isn't particularly you know, despite the long list, isn't particularly useful or, or I might say rich. And to give you an illustration of why, let's suppose, like, let's pick a couple of biases that are quite often talked about. So I've already met, I've already mentioned loss aversion. So people, people are really, um, people um, don't like loss. Uh, they, it's more painful, so they'll avoid, um, you know, risky bets, um, even if they've got, you know, good positive value because they're afraid of loss. Then of course, there's this other basket of again called biases around overconfidence. And, and there's different flavors of overconfidence. So there's overprecision where you believe you know something more accurately than it really is, or overplacement where you think you're better than others. And mm. so, and, or, or, if I, or should I say finally, overestimation where you just think your absolute performance is better than it really be. 
So here, so you've got the, you know, you've got this list that includes loss aversion, it includes overconfidence, and then you're trying to describe a CEO's behavior, and the CEO doesn't take a certain decision. Well, you know, is it, you know, why, why wouldn't they? Why aren't they overconfident on one hand taking that decision? And then you go, the loss averse. And you end up with this list of biases that effectively can explain anything because they're all competing, you know, in some ways they're competing um, biases, pushing in different directions. And you don't have any way of filtering through them and going, oh, well, actually, given this particular, um, <laughs> given, given this particular context, given this particular say, decision maker, what do we actually expect is going to be the, I guess the, the the dominant, I think the wrong way to think of his bias actually, but dominant bias was going to be the dominant sort of driver of their decision. Okay, so you you have the these different biases and it's hard to kind of disentangle them. And, and I've seen lists of, you know, 200 and something different biases, which uh, yeah. you know, really, I guess, from a, a layperson's perspective, makes it very hard to kind of yes. fil- figure out what really I should be looking at. Yeah, absolutely, and it makes it just a not a very practical, yeah, as I said, not a very practical toolkit. Um, sometimes it's kind of like sometimes it's useful just in brainstorming. So you can sit sit around and go, oh, okay, let's let's try and think about what's 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 going on here. But it's but like but in that case, it's not really you, you're not really I guess doing science. You're you can I'm just doing storytelling. You may as well you know you could you could also you know brainstorm using the zodiac or something else. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> It's not necessary that it's you know it's not clear to me that simply pulling biases out of a hat like that lead to a particularly uh, you know either rich understanding of what's happening or you know, it's often the case in the applied sense that it leads you to developing better interventions than you would otherwise. Okay, so the real world practical uh, consequences of, of that. I'm curious to come in, in a moment to you know what you feel could be done to to, to fix or to, to address some of these challenges. But before we do, I, I was keen to I'm keen to ask about you know one of the big concepts which has grown up in behavioral economics in in recent years that that of nudge. Um, yes. How does that fit in with all of this? Is is there evidence to support that, or is that also slightly problematic? Do you think? Okay, so so I think nudges are kind of an interesting term is there's actually a lot of debate about what even a nudge is. And so maybe maybe for a start, maybe let me take the definition right back from Richard Thaler and, and Cass Sunstein from their book Nudge, where they basically said a nudge is an intervention that doesn't rely on you know, typical economic incentives to change behavior and where people's choices basically remain as they were. So effectively all you're doing through a nudge is you're changing the information set or this is, I guess, the key bit for most nudges, you know, the, the, the framing of the information or the way that choice is, is framed. And I think there's fairly good evidence that some nudges can change behaviour um, when, when they're applied. So, so on, on a base level, that, that, that's the case. And you know, the, classic, you know, the classic examples around some of those where they've worked is, say, around social norms. So telling people that most other people do something um, say in the context of submitting your tax return on time, that's what the program one of the classic really early experiments actually did change uh, behavior. So, so I think yeah, nudges can work. For me, the, the, the idea of nudging though has a slightly more dangerous edge to it, if dangerous is the right word, but basically where, where when you go out there and you look at other people's behavior and you say, those people are you know, making an error or not doing what what I would like them to do, 
um, then applying a nudge to change that behavior. So it indicates either one, you know, a real degree of confidence in your own assessment that those people are making an error, and also an assumption that, that perhaps that, you know, that that you don't believe that you know, they should have complete autonomy, that, that, that there's actually um, that there's actually a case for you to, to try and try and shift that decision. And, and, and that can, you know, that that approach can, I think, really lead to a you know, or, or be a result of a real lack of humility. Mm-hmm. Um, people um, are equipped with a lot of information um, that we don't have as as nudgy, as nudges. Uh, they have objectives that we often don't understand. And as, as a result, you know, when we're trying to change their behavior, um, we may not actually really be leading to them being better off. If you think, you know, better off and say that in terms of their well-being, you know, their mental state, their emotions, or whatever it might be, you might be um, ch- you know, changing the behavior in the dimension you care about. But is it really helping them, I suppose, be, you know, have higher well-being if that's your ultimate objective? That makes sense, and and it fits with with the term, if I remember rightly, that I've heard used to describe you know the whole nudge concept, which is what authoritarian paternalism, um, and as you said, it's that assumption that I know best, and and I'm sure there there are certain things that in general it is better if people don't drink to excess or they, yeah. you know, eat a healthier diet. Yeah, but, but of course there is that element of, of free will and free choice that you're. Yes take you away or influencing anyway. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and let me maybe let me give you one example where I think this is this sure. illustrated really nicely for me. So one of the, again, really successful examples of nudges is on people's power bills and comparing them to their neighbours. And so showing you know, your neighbour uses less power than you, and that actually tends to then decrease people's power use. There is a backfire here where if you show your neighbour, the neighbour uses more power, they tend to increase. But again, if you know who's using which power, you can send the letters to only those who have neighbours who are using less power than them. You can get people then to conserve energy. But then what happens is then if you go and ask those people and say, well, do you like these comparisons? And in one study by, I can't recall the authors, Stefan Lovina among among them, but they asked people, um, how much would you be willing to pay to get this information? This is information that, that you can then use to improve your decisions. And one third of the people were willing to pay to not receive that information because, yes, maybe it influenced their behaviour a little bit to reduce their electricity use, but it made them feel bad. Uh, and so from a well-being perspective, they were willing to pay not to receive that. And so I think that this is where we come to this point around, um, you, know, you know, what is the, well, a couple of points, what is the right measure of well-being here? Because if it's mm-hmm. about, you know, how, you know, there are feelings, ultimately subjective well-being, if, you know, some people, some, some philosophers would argue that's all there is, subjective well-being, uh, then, then you probably, you probably fail, even though they've uh, lowered their, um, their electricity usage. And then, yeah, and then, and then from the, um, you know, perspective of, of again, this, um, Autonomy. It's like you know, if, if they don't want to receive that information, um, should they then have the right, you know, that right to turn it down and, and to exclude themselves from the nudge? Because I guess you know, people typically know that they you know shouldn't be using excess electricity; it's a waste, and so on. But they don't necessarily want to be reminded, or, or worst case scenario, nagged uh, about that. So it makes sense that you might pay not, not to receive that information. Oh. Yeah, well, even at the extreme case, so imagine out of people who receive the social norm letters for, for tax returns. So there's probably a cohort there who simply don't 
don't lodge tax returns due to you know, personal circumstances, such as you know, maybe they're going to, get, going to get a huge tax debt that they're desperately trying to avoid, they're under a lot of financial stress, and then you go and send them a letter that places them under further mental stress, um, saying everyone else is paying their tax on time. And again, from a, from a mental health um, aspect, you know, there's probably some people who have been, been harmed by that measure. Undoubtedly increased tax payments, but probably at some cost. So if that talks about you know some of the the challenges with with uh, behavioral economics more more broadly you know based on all of that what what do you think could be done to to fix or to to improve behavioral economics oh, yeah that, that, that's a really long list <laughs> where do we start of, of things yeah so my so i think probably need to separate you know the applied behavioral economics from the academic behavioral economics i think because in some ways they both need they both have things which which could be done um much better. So on the academic side, so I you know, started off talking about the replication crisis and how many of these phenomena um, don't exist. Like there really is just a need for improved scientific practice there around things such as pre-registering studies before they occur. So actually, you know, say, say well, here's what the study study is, here's how I'm going to analyze it, then run the study, and then hopefully you know, that will then mean that we're less likely to simply see all the the cool funky results that emerge through through false positive you know through luck and instead we'll see the full universe of studies out there um you know we'll see other things such as many replications happening and journals are starting to accept more replication so some of that's ha happening there and I, can, I should say it's probably getting better but I, it's kind of funny every time i open a open a journal and i still see junk and so it makes me somewhat um I guess uh, depressed at the you know, how slow the pace of that improved scientific practice um, is. Then there's the, the, the this is a bit which I think can benefit both this question of you know, how we ultimately move beyond a world of a list of long list of biases and start to think about is there are there more holistic models that start to bring these concepts together. Um, and also, you know, that allow us to say, go, you know, identify which of these are uh, junk, which of these interact, which of these are simply, you know, other, you know, alternative descriptions of the same thing. But to actually give us a, 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 a sharper model of, of human behaviour. And, and what's really, I guess, striking on that is when we, when you do a behavioural, do an economics one hundred and one, so you do your first economics course, you'll get taught those basic economic assumptions. Um, you know, they've been around for more than 50 years, in fact, it's been more than it's coming pretty 70 years now at least. They've been around for a really long time and you still get taught that same basic model with those same implicit assumptions of human behaviour. And because there's just, you know, behavioural economics in some ways has just largely been this huge accumulation of effects and phenomena, there's no ready replacement for that model. There's no... We're still going to get taught that basic, you know, economics one hundred and one model, and which means that you know, then that's the starting point for when people are thinking about problems. Which is probably again, it's the wrong model. It's not, you know, we know what behavioral economics shows there's problems. Mm -hmm. Instead, we need need something richer. There's, there's there's ideas in behavioral economics like you know, so the one everyone points to when I say this, they go, "What about prospect theory?" Which is a collection of four or five phenomena, but it's basically a descriptive model. There's no real conceptual. Um, framework that says here's the bunch of phenomena that we should expect together. So, so it's pro so, so it's probably probably not the not not the answer yet. The big question is, you know, what is it? But ultimately, if we had that, yeah, we'd hopefully then end up with a much smaller list. We'd end up we'd understand how they interact, and then what we do is we we then be able to equip those who want to do applied behavioral science, those who want to nudge. 
with instead of a really long list of us ideas they can pluck, um, hopefully a more structured way that they can approach problems and think about what may actually be happening in a certain um, decision-making environment. And, and just uh, so, so I'm clear, when you talk about the those basic concepts from Economics 101, am I right in thinking it's as things like, you know, rational human behavior, perfect markets, per perfect information, all, all of that kind of thing? Uh, well, no, I'd say it's probably around, really around that rationality assumption. Of course, okay. And this, and this is funny, economists will, depending on which economists you're talking about, talking to about which problem, that rationality definition um, sort of varies. But when it comes to applied economics, that, that assumption, apart from ideas like transitivity that I mentioned earlier, sure. um, it has things like, you know, always wanting more. Um, it has an, there's an implicit selfishness quite often in it, even though economists will say, we don't assume people are selfish. When it comes to applied economics, they, they, they end up doing that because they do a utility function where it only, it's only that person's own um, outcomes that matters. So, so there is basically, a um, yeah, in some ways, it's that broader definition of rationality that we use. And, but that, of course, is, the, is exactly what behavioral economics, at least those concepts which are still robust and are shown to sort of um, have uh, some some legs should go. Hang on, that's not always always right. You know, for instance, we we you know quite often we're willing to willing to actually sacrifice our own own well being. We're, we're loss averse, so we don't always just maximise um, expected utility. Uh, um, it, we're affected by the information and the way things are framed. So the same decision shown to us in two different ways will lead to a different decision like that. They're really robust. The question is. What's something, you know, what's a, a model or a set of models, a set of framework, a framework that can allow us to bring some of those things together and stop thinking about them as just idiosyncratic biases or effects? And are there, are there, are there any people who are already um, working on this, you know, apart from yourself, obviously, and trying to d develop a, a behavioral economics 2.0, if I if I can put it that no, way? No, no, there, there are, but... I think this is one of the funny things about economics. Economics is a discipline where there's someone working on everything. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's kind of one of those funny things when every time, whenever you go talk to an economist who knows the literature really well, you go, oh, economists don't do this. And I'll go, what about this paper by X and this paper by Y? There's something by everyone. And there are some really interesting ideas floating around in economics, but you know, ideas such as is, is attention the idea that can really bring it, bring um, all this together. Um, there's of course, yeah, there's, there's, there's um, and this is my, I guess a bit like the thread that appeals to me is evolutionary biologists or people who sort of have a background in evolutionary biology saying evolutionary biology could actually provide um, a lot of that unifying framework. So the work's being done. The thing which I really push in in some ways, I guess, is the thing which um, gets me um, going at the moment is that, you know, those ideas are all in the on the fringe and I'm always going, what's the, when's the day or what's, how do we get it to the point where instead of it being sort of people just pulling together little ideas on the edge and, and sort of cool models or cool sort of even you know, unified models, but actually you get a contest of those models, a contest of ideas around the core frameworks so that in 20 years time, when a um, new economic student opens their textbook and they actually, you know, they, they, they actually start to see from the beginning, actually, here's a, here's a richer model of how um, we, we, we start, you know, a richer model of the humans that we're going to build on in our analysis of economic systems. It sounds almost as though you're suggesting that um, you apply a market-based approach to behavioral economics and and allow these things to to, to play out or, or am i over reading into to what you said there well i think i described this really as a scientific approach um ultimately that 
theories are scientific. You know, I think a bit Popperian here. They they're um, scientific because they can be falsified. And ultimately, we should be able to you know, put these ideas up and go, which ones can we falsify or which ones which ones can withstand um, the experimental uh, scrutiny? And ultimately, we end up you know, as the survivors. Whereas right now, when people do tend to come up with uh, interesting models um, and ideas, unfortunately, they tend to get neglected. It's like people go, oh, nice publication, <laughs> good work, and then and then move on. Like it's very like I'm not I'm not quite sure what it would take for for something to really displace that central piece. Like ultimately, so, you know, so someone again, let me play the devil's advocate against myself here. It's obviously some some economists, and in fact, Richard Baylor, um, I, I've seen him argue this, would say that look, in the end, that rational actor model is the best, as good as it gets. Um, you kind of, I'm tilting at windmills here, but I think that you know my, my view is is that what you know, the work hasn't occurred, that contest hasn't happened to allow us to say at the end, okay, in the end, the rational act is as good as it gets. Yes, we're going to have a few biases around the edge, but that's our central model, and there's nothing else that can supplant it. Okay, so uh, I guess to to draw things together then and and summarize. What would be your perhaps top three recommendations for making behavioral economics better? If if you could just snap your fingers and and make it happen. Well, no, number one, number one is, is is really humility. Um, so this is coming to the applied. This is for the applied behavioral economist. Is is really having humility to go say someone's making a decision that is different from the decision I believe they should be making. And the first step should be going, why am I wrong? <laughs> why am I likely to be wrong? What is it I'm not likely understanding about their objectives or the information they have or how they, you know, how they are making that decision? So, so that's the, the probably the, the, the first thing that I, I, I'd really um, in, encourage. The second thing is it's, it's really around thinking of behavioral economics less as a list of biases or phenomena but rather as a methodology, as a way of approaching the problems. And this is something that I really try and bring out in my teaching is you know, ultimately when you're doing applied behavioral science, you don't just look at a problem and, you know, and then look at a problem and develop a nice slide deck going where they're making mistakes because they're loss averse and we accompany it with some nice pictures of brains on slides. Yeah. Um, instead, what we need to do is we need, like, need to actually approach problems where we have an open mind, actually, you know, first up, really go define the problem. Is there a real problem here? That's our humility coming in. But then treating all our ideas as to what's going wrong or what's going on as hypotheses and then really putting them to the test, running trials. And until we've run a trial test that's seen if, seen if things change, that's all. Until then, we, we only have hypotheses. We're storytelling. So really building, making sure we're treating as a science and then that way, if we, you know, this is if we if we are given a whole bunch of, I guess, fairly, uh, I guess, weak findings in the scientific literature through our own application of science, our own testing, we'll be able to at least identify them and make sure what we're using um, is robust. So that's so that's probably number number two. Um, number no, no, number three for me again is that's my is, is back to my pipe dream of not giving up on this direct of this idea of actually. You know, really thinking about what that you know what a unified or more holistic model um, in behavioral um, economics might might look like. You know, hopefully, more more see more academics sort of really working on it, and and far more prestige and and uh, support given to those who are thinking about how do we tie this together rather than simply identifying some new interesting effects that they can you know that they can go and get their publication from. If people wanted to find out more about your work and your research, is there anywhere particular they can go? 
Uh, well, so the, the place to go would be my blog, so which is at jasoncollins.blog. Uh, unfortunately, not writing there as much as I would like, but but there you can find yeah, quite, a, quite a long back catalogue of posts of me <laughs> complaining about the very things I've been um, complaining about during this conversation. <laughs> and and, from, and actually some of, some of my older um, writings on um, how economics and evolutionary biology um, could complement each other. Okay, that sounds great. Dr. Jason Collins of University of Technology, Sydney, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.